Hello, and welcome to the OCR Exams podcast, where we'll be chatting with a range of guest speakers from the world of education. My name's Anthony. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. Here at OCR, we're committed to supporting teachers and exams officers at every step of their journey with us. We're also here to help our students to reach their full potential, and some of our podcasts will feature tips and advice on revising, preparing for exams, and managing mental health. Please remember to like, comment on, and subscribe to our podcast on whichever platform you're using, and be sure to follow our other social media channels. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram. Just search for OCR exams. You can also find a range of subject-specific blogs on our website, ocr.org.uk forward slash blog. So let's get started with today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the OCR podcast. Um, My name is Sarah Millington and I'm the subject advisor here at OCR, responsible for supporting teachers who are delivering our health and social care and child development qualifications. Hi everyone, I'm Anthony Day, the Customer Communications Manager, responsible for sharing news, resources and support for our teachers and students across our channels. So today I'm very excited to say that we're talking with our guest, David Adam. He's a best-selling author and an award-winning journalist to talk about mental health and well-being, his experience with OCD as part of our Mental Health Awareness Week campaign. So David, thanks so much for joining us. To start us off, please could you introduce yourself to our listeners and a little bit about your background and work? Yeah, sure. Um... Thanks very much for for inviting me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to do uh, this podcast. Um, so yeah, I work as a. I'm now a freelance journalist. Um, I write about science and tech and medicine, and um, I I used to work on the Guardian as a reporter. Um, I then worked at Nature for a long time as, as an editor there. So Nature is a scientific journal, um, and then I went freelance about four or five years ago. Um, so I still write for lots of the same places, um, but on, now on a freelance basis. Uh, but I also have and have had obsessive compulsive disorder for many, many years. Um, and about, I guess, 12 or 13 years ago, um, I started to um, get some help and some proper treatment. And I then, after I, um, I hesitate to use the word recovered. But as I, after I started to feel better, I, I wrote a book um, about about my experiences and about what I had learned and found out about OCD um, and sort of the history of it and the ways that people have viewed it and have tried to treat it over the years, and um, and that and that came out and and people it seemed to find an audience. Um, so I like to say that I I didn't really talk about OCD for about twenty years, and since then I haven't shut up about it. So. Um, yeah, always very happy to to come and, and, and talk about it because there are, you know, there will be people listening to this right now who who have OCD or know someone who's got OCD. And this might be the first time they've ever heard anyone actually talking about it because it is still pretty rare. Um, you know, mental health awareness is a, is a big issue um, and there are some types of, of mental disorder which I think are more kind of heavily um, 
covered and known and talked about than others. And I think OCD is still one of those which is at the as a lower end of the spectrum. Um, and in fact, there there are some quite, and we can get onto these, I'm sure, some sort of misleading ideas as, as to as to what it actually is. And, and that can really cause some um can cause some real problems. So I mean, I don't really like the phrase awareness raising because it, it to me it just sounds rather trite, but but I think that is what we are doing. You know, we are but but I like to think of on a personal level because I've been there, I've been there and, and heard people talk about this and thought, wow, that's that's me, that's my experiences. Um, and, and so to anyone who hears this, you know, and, and, and recognises what we're going to be talking about, you you are not alone, I promise you. So you mentioned the diagnosis um, with OCD. So just kind of for our listeners, can you just explain um, what are the key signs and symptoms of OCD? So kind of when you first kind of, recognize it kind of what were those first areas that you noticed yeah so so ocd if we just go back to slight basics um obsessive compulsive disorder and 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 obsessive um an obsessive thought in in this context is it's what psychologists call an intrusive thought so it's not necessarily something which um most people would get anxious about but it is the kind of thought that most people have and most people uh, are able to ignore those thoughts. So, so very famously, uh, Winston Churchill, um, whenever he heard, when he was waiting on a railway platform and he heard the rumble of the express train that was going to come through and not stop, he would get this strange urge to jump in front of the train. It's really common. Um, you know, people get it in London all the time. And and it, sorry, I only say that because of the underground, um, the underground trains. People get it everywhere. Um, but it's very common, especially in underground trains. Um, and, um, and and these people, they're not suicidal. They don't want to jump in front of the train. They don't, they don't um, decide to get that urge. But they do get the urge, and it's very weird. And most people, as I said, they would, they would think that's strange, isn't it? And the train would come, and they'd get on the train, and they'd, they'd go about their day. In some people, and we're not quite sure why, but in some people, those thoughts, they don't go away or those urges don't go away in the way that they do with most people. And, and what can then happen is when you find that there is a thought in your head, which is both sort of unpleasant in, in its content, but also just really weird. It shouldn't be there. Um, and those thoughts don't go away. It can be pretty, pretty disturbing. Um and and what what do you then do if you have a thought like that that won't go away? Because you can't you can't make it go away. You you can't sort of by thinking harder about something else make it go away. The only real um, option I suppose you have is is to somehow change your behaviour in a way that either makes the thought go away or makes you feel better about it. So with the example of someone waiting for the train they might take a step back away from the platform edge. Winston Churchill used to like to put a pillar between himself. He would actually hide behind a pillar when the express train went through. Now, that can relieve temporarily the anxiety caused by the thought. You know, If you're standing behind a pillar, it's much harder for you to obviously jump in front of the train. The problem is that in performing that behaviour, you kind of give the thought more credibility. You take it seriously. And so 
you get it back, you get it again. And you then have to perform the same behavior again to try and reduce the anxiety. And quite quickly, you can get into this cycle where an obsessive thought demands a compulsive behavioral response. Now, there are different versions and, and not everyone has it in the same way. But but broadly speaking, that's how it works. It's sort of a, a call and a response. It's a thought of behavior, an obsession and a compulsion. And it's when those two combine to such an extent that it affects someone's quality of life. That's really when the D arrives because you've now got a disorder. So lots of people will say, oh, so-and-so is a little bit OCD because they like to, um, I don't know, put things in alphabetical order or they like to have their kitchen clean or something like that. But it's not, you can't really have a little bit OCD. You can be a little bit O, a little bit C, but by definition, if there is a D there, it has got to the point where it affects your life. And, and it really does affect people's lives. Uh, it, you know, it can take, I think the, the average, the, not the most extreme, the average person with OCD spends something like eight hours a day either thinking about their obsessions or performing these compulsions. And you asked about mine. So my OCD was very um, specific. It was very cult. So OCD runs along cultural lines. Every sort of generation has its uh, cultural bogeyman, this sort of societal fear, which can um, OCD can kind of lock onto. And so I grew up in the 1980s. So it was around HIV and AIDS. Um, at the time was this, it was this big, scary new disease and there were adverts on television and radio to, to tell you to be scared of it. Basically, that was the only weapon the government had was to scare people. Um, so, so mine's about HIV and AIDS. And, and, and quite interestingly, my OCD or the source of my OCD, that my, my fear of HIV and AIDS has not matured with the way that treatments, for example, for HIV and AIDS have changed. You know, it is no longer effectively the, the unknown terminal disease that it was in the 80s. Um, but that's the thing to say is that these thoughts are irrational. I know them to be irrational. I know that I can't catch HIV from, I don't know, touching a tap with a small cut on my finger or shaking hands with someone who's got a plaster on their finger or, or I mean, literally thousands of other ways that I've that I've considered over the years. Um, and and I think what's what's worth mentioning is that because... OCD, the thoughts involved are irrational. The the kind of the the nature, if you like, of OCD, the the the, the content of the obsessions is limited only by the human imagination. And people can get obsessed with just about anything. And the more irrational, the harder it is to talk about. You know, I've met people who they think when they close their eyes, the world is going to change. And when they open their eyes, they're going to be a different person in a different place. You know, they it, they don't need to be told that silly. <laughs> they know that. And yet they can't stop those thoughts. Um, and, and one of the things that your listeners might have experienced recently um, or OCD may have, their OCD may have experienced recently is, is obviously the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. Um, in, in many ways, the early days of the COVID pandemic were, were perfect to sort of seed OCD, if you like, because it involved hand washing and then it involved sometimes you had to wash your hands while singing happy birthday. You know, that's you couldn't get much more of a sort of an OCD experience than that. Um, but but also 
there are extremely irrational responses to it. Um, so there are people who can't couldn't eat Chinese food, for example, because the virus originated in China. You know, they know this to be irrational. Um, and, and so most recently, the pandemic, it could either it could either trigger someone's OCD or in someone who might have OCD already, it could sort of it could form the content of the obsessions and the compulsions. And I think the other thing just worth mentioning as an introduction is that OCD can, like lots of other mental issues, it can be sort of triggered by by stress or stressful events. Um, so, you know, including, I, I would have thought, exam pressure and exam stress. So I think this is uh, absolutely a valuable time to be discussing this and, and hopefully helping people identify the signs of it. Mm. So you mentioned that, that the, the emergence of the AIDS and HIV crisis coincided with your own OCD starting. Um, I'm interested to understand if whether it's your experience or others that you you've you've worked with and talked to about about when their OCD starts. Is it something that starts gradually, or is there something? Can you remember? There's a moment in time, a pinpoint that that's when you started experiencing those feelings and symptoms and actions. I can remember. I can remember um, to the minute. I, I can tell you. I can tell you what day it was, what time of the day it was, what the weather was like, what the, what I was wearing, um, because uh, I mean, I will tell you. It was it was 1991. It was summer. I was on holiday from university. I was staying at my parents' house. I'd been out with some friends. I was walking home, and it was. I just had this thought, this completely irrational thought, which arrived from nowhere, which was so out of place. I just so I wrote this book about OCD it's called the man who couldn't stop um, and in that book I sort of described this moment as so out of place it was as if a snowflake snowflake had just fallen from the sky in the middle of August and that thought was just you know you could have AIDS now um, clearly that wasn't the first time I'd ever thought about HIV and AIDS you know so there had been a series of I guess events in my past you know either either seeing about HIV on the news or worrying about HIV with certain situations but there was nothing that I'd done that was going to be a specific trigger or a specific risk it was just the thought just came now I think that is fairly unusual in that I can remember exactly when and when it started but I think it was partly because it was just so weird and it was it was so full-on it went from feeling great to feeling terrible you know in in a split second um, I, I think everyone's different, but I, I think there are a range of ways in which it progresses. And I think we don't always know because because people sometimes just don't recognise it as OCD because they are um, they're kind of people with OCD get their information from the same place as everyone else does. So if the newspapers and the TV and websites are full of the fact that OCD is like cleaning, you know, and you have thoughts about harming people, you you might not even recognise that as OCD. You might just think I'm having these weird thoughts. Um, and so I think it's often when people... The other thing to say is that because these thoughts are so weird, we just expect them to go away. These aren't the first time we've had weird thoughts, you know, and, and 
always previously those weird thoughts have gone away. So we expect that will happen this time as well. And so I think it takes a bit of time for people to realise that that they're that they're stuck, I suppose. Um, and, and that the natural recovery isn't going to happen. And and often that's when people start to realise they have an issue. Mm, absolutely. Thank you. And should I think kind of you had those those kind of those first kind of that realization of when you had that kind of that weird kind of feeling so when did you first reach out for kind of you knew it was it was something and you needed to kind of to reach out for some help and kind of where did you go for that because I can imagine that point is quite difficult so the first the first help that I reached out for was actually extremely unhelpful because what I did was when I was worried about catching HIV or AIDS in a particular way I would seek reassurance that I hadn't done that so I was trying to address the rational thoughts, trying to rationalise my way out of it. And I would basically get, seek medical advice on whether I could have caught HIV or AIDS in a particular way. Um, it took me a long time, I think, to, to recognise that this was a mental issue, not a genuine kind of fear of, uh, not a phobia, I suppose, or, a, or a, just an exaggerated fear of something that I was right to be afraid of um and so it, it probably i mean this is it probably took three years maybe to actually go and see a psychiatrist at the university health center and um he uh the, the treatment back the treatment back then in leeds in the mid 90s was was not what you would call an evidence-based it was an elastic band and, and this was so the idea of thought stopping was that I would wear this elastic band on my wrist and I would snap it against my wrist each time I had one of these thoughts. Um, and that didn't work. Um, and I then sort of, I kind of got used to it in a way. I, I came to terms with it. I just thought this was my thing. Everybody had something, you know, I knew people who had cancer or heart attacks. You know, it was my, just my, my burden I suppose and I would have to live with it um and that I mean that changed eventually when I had children and we can get onto that when we talk about the hopefully the more successful treatment um but I remember even when I went to see the psychiatrist I didn't I wasn't sure it was OCD and I still thought that what was happening to me was so weird and so um unlike anything I'd ever experienced before that it must be unique I must be the only person in the world to think this and I remember the psychiatrist said to me, you know, you know, I'm treating three other people at this same university for these same kind of thoughts about HIV and AIDS. And that was the first time that made me feel that connection again, I guess, to, to other people, because because it's so difficult to talk about this stuff because it's embarrassing. Um, you know, almost always the topic of these thoughts is is your sort of deepest, darkest spheres and secrets. And it's about violence and it's about sex and it's about, you know, just sort of quite emotional stuff. And and also it, you do think that you're, that no one else will get it, that no one else will get it. And and it's amazing the, the response that I had after publishing the book was every time I went on the radio, every time I went on the TV, every time I did a podcast like this, I would just get emails from all around the world saying, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. 
you know, I had to pull, I was listening to the radio, I had to pull, pull over in my car because I was just weeping the fact that I, I recognised my own experiences and what you were saying. And, and it's because most people just don't talk about it. And did you find it hard to talk to family and friends around the same time? Yeah, I just didn't. No. I didn't tell anybody. You just thought the only thing you could do was just to speak to a professional, and even that was hard enough. Yeah. 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 So what point did you start speaking, you know, putting your trust in, you know, a a close friend or family member? So I I told girlfriends because Mm. because of the issue around HIV and, you know, safe sex and that kind of stuff. Um, But I didn't really, I kind of tried to tell people, but one of the things about OCD and, and probably a lot of other mental issues as well, I don't claim any you know, kind of territory here, is that um, you think about it almost all the time. I mean, almost all the time. It's it's almost impractical to believe even now that I was that person. And because it's the most important thing about you every single day to you, you think that it's going to be that important to everybody else as well. Whereas actually everyone else has got their own things they're dealing with. They've got their own issues. They see you as a person who does X, Y, and Z, as well as having these thoughts that you're telling someone about. So it's almost impossible to 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 communicate, I suppose, the um, the severity of it because it just doesn't seem possible. You know, you start talking about it to someone, and they will say, "Oh yeah, you know, I do this thing where I worry about the the iron being left on." And so I just want to sort of shake them and say, "No, you don't get it. It's it's um, so." not everybody is like that you know i do know people who 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 are sort of suffering with ocd and have told their friends told their family they're very open about it since i have been open about it um nothing bad has happened (laughs) you know um people talk about the stigma but i haven't experienced any stigma really um so i think that i i'm kind of sad i guess that i didn't tell people earlier and that i didn't talk about it earlier um but also there's this sort of like when my mum and dad found out about it or through the book you know they felt very responsible and and sad that they that they didn't know and couldn't have helped but i i had to say you know i had to say it was a it's a medical issue and it needed medical intervention you know and and there has to there has to come a point where where you're ready for that to seek it and to receive it um and and the fact is if it was so simple as just just to talk about it made it feel better then it wouldn't be such a serious problem you know it, it's not enough just to talk about it with people i think i think other people can support you through treatment if you're lucky enough to get it but but very rarely unfortunately just 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 being open and transparent and talking about it really make any significant dent in the symptoms so we talk about um treatment so what treatment then kind of did you find helpful um when you see it so you see elastic band kind of didn't help so what treatment kind of was helpful to you kind of to, on that recovery so yeah so we now skip forward to i got married i had a baby baby girl i found i was starting to involve her and in some of my thoughts and rituals and i was like no 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 this this stops this stops here 
So I went to the doctor, went to the GP. Um, he basically re-diagnosed, if you like, OCD from what I was telling him. Um, I then got referred to a, a mental health specialist in the local area. And I was extremely lucky because, you know, mental health provision is is patchy and deteriorating. This was still, this was over a decade ago when I went for help and I, and I got help. I got, I happened to live in the catchment area for an excellent OCD treatment centre. So I got what is the gold standard frontline treatment for OCD, which is, um, it's two things. You get something called a cognitive behavioural therapy. CBT, which I think most people will be familiar with the term, but it, you get a sort of a specific type of CBT for OCD, um, and I so that was that was group therapy essentially. I, I got a course of, I think, twelve weeks, so one afternoon a week for twelve weeks, so three hours a week for twelve weeks, as part of a group um, for this CBT. And I got put on a high dose of um, antidepressants. So the same sort of drugs that you would get if you if you have depression or SSRIs, like Prozac. So I wasn't depressed, but but it just seems to help with OCD. They're not quite sure why. And so those sort of happened at the same time. So it's hard to know which, if any, was 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 better. But again, the evidence suggests that if you can put people on the antidepressants and you can give them a good course of CBT, most people will feel mostly better. You know, it doesn't fix everybody. It doesn't help everybody, sadly. There's some people who don't get help from it. But in my case, I was I was lucky that it, it didn't cure me, but it, it showed me uh, it gave me a lot of theoretical understanding of what was happening, a lot of what I just we talked about at the beginning. And it gave me a connection to people and it gave me some some quite specific tools, I suppose, to, to deal with the thoughts. Because I think when you're so used to these thoughts being weird and wrong, you think that the treatment is going to take them away, but unfortunately it doesn't and it can't. And, that, and that's one of the hardest things to deal with is that realisation. But what it does do, it gives you some tools and tactics to help you essentially not respond to them, to not change your behaviour in that way that we talked about at the beginning. And in doing so, you can you can weaken and then hopefully break that connection between the thoughts that are always going to come and and which are but which are out of your control and the compulsive behaviour, which as hard as it is, are within your control. So with regards to managing your OCD today, are, are you finding it easy enough to take all those learnings and tools and techniques from your CBT sessions years ago and you're still able to, to, to manage it in that way or is it a combination yeah, of that as well as drugs? Or I mean, I still take the drugs. Um, yeah. there's, no, there's no sort of, um, there's no evidence that they're, they're doing me any harm. And, and my own experiences are probably doing me some good. Um, so my psychiatrist always says, you know, what gets you well keeps you well. So I see no reason to stop taking them. Um, the CBT tools, I would never say it's easy, but I describe it, I guess, it's a bit like being a recovering alcoholic and every day you're offered a drink. Every day I have these thoughts. 
an everyday an alcoholic could just take that drink and drink it and find themselves very quickly get pulled right back into the whole dependency and and so it's a bit like that every time i have one of these thoughts i have to resist the urge to perform a compulsive check because those compulsions are usually what we do to make ourselves feel better you know they, they give us that little hit of reassurance or or comfort but then they trigger the thought to come back again so so you it's a bit like being an addict you know where you get a hit but then you need to you'd have it again and again and again and again so I, I understand all of that and i kind of know that if i if i don't perform the compulsions then the anxiety that the thoughts provoke will die away in it by itself and i think having experienced that in the past it gives me more confidence that it will happen again but essentially every time i have one of these thoughts it's an internal battle between part of me that wants to take the easy short way out and, and seek reassurance through a compulsive behavior usually reassurance and the more strategic kind of trained version of me which knows that hey that isn't the right thing to do b it would probably almost certainly encourage the thought to come back and see know that if i can resist it even though i will feel anxious that anxiety will go away is no thank you so it's learning how to kind of to deal with kind of those thoughts and things like that um no it's really interesting because i'm kind of taking that on board as well so advice to people that kind of maybe suffering with any kind of uh, mental health such as stress anxiety or even if they can listen to this and thought right that's I, i need to kind of go and see someone what advice would you actually kind of give to anybody so i mean i have to say that i i'm a I'm a terrible role model for this because I kept it to myself for 20 years, right? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just someone who went through this. Um, I think that if you feel ready to, to embrace the change that will come, then you go and see a doctor. I, I suppose for, for OCD and the intrusive thoughts, my advice would be, that it won't go away by itself as hard as that is to hear you, you need some kind of help to help make it go away now and that journey usually starts with going just going to see a gp um now unfortunately that journal that journey presents a series of hurdles that you have to cross and there seem to be more hurdles each year partly because of the lack of availability of, of good cbt counselors so there's a waiting list. At every point, it's easier just to drop out and think, you know, I'll, I'll just deal with it. I, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to have to confront it. I don't want to have to wait. Um, again, the advice would be that that you, if you're going to confront this at some point, there's no sense, there's no point in waiting. I think it does help to talk to people if you feel able to. Um, but I would say try and find people who you think would understand rather than just someone who you would talk to about anything else um i think that um do read up on it you know i mean the internet is such a valuable resource um you know if this has been helpful hearing someone else talk about it there are case studies there are testimonies all over the internet 
uh, not just for OCD, for all, for all forms of, of mental issues. I think that be grateful that, that there's almost never been a better time to have OCD or, or a mental disorder because there's much more awareness now. Uh, you know, doctors are fully on board with it, they understand what it is. Um, as I said, help is patchy, but but if you can get help, you're not going to get an elastic band anymore. You are going to get the, the best treatment. Um, so be confident in that, I suppose. Um, and I think just be be reassured that however bad you think it is, there is there is hope there is opportunity to recover because honestly i was i was just in pieces for, for such a long time um so desperately unhappy and sad and distracted and um you know and and, and everybody in that situation thinks that they're the only one who feels that way and that okay there might be this thing called oc and other people might have i heard that bloke on the podcast but Mind's different, it, it, and it, it just isn't. You know, there there is a there's a certain sort of commonality, and and that's what the medical health professionals deal with, um, because that is what connects us, I suppose. Absolutely, no, thank you. It's great advice there, and the key takeaway is that there's support is available for you, um, and people won't be judged. Um, so, exam season is kicking off now. Um, so we've got thousands of students about to take um, exams. So have you got any tips or advice for them who may be feeling a bit overwhelmed due to their upcoming exams? All I can say, I suppose, is that um, I, I've never met anybody who had anything that was causing them anxiety, who said, I'm really glad I didn't tell anybody about it. And it sounds so trivial and obvious, but I think what I have learned from the OCD is that forming connections with people, even if you're both feeling terrible, you know, it, it does. It's not going to make you feel worse, right? You know, very, very, very rarely does talking about something with somebody make you feel worse. So that's always a good first step. I think try and be kind to yourself. It is stressful because it matters, right? But also you're lucky to be in a position where you have control over things that matter, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's getting a bit philosophical now, isn't it? But um, I think just to sort of take a deep breath and, and, and I'm sure people hate being told this, but, you know, everyone knows people who don't do well in their exams first time and comes back stronger and does well. You know, life is long. I, I've had OCD for a long time and I've been in recovery for an awful long time as well. And I still feel there's a, lot, a long way to go. Um, you know, so it seems when you're young, you know, it seems like everything that you have to decide and do it right now. Whereas actually, I can tell you that in 10 years time, however you do in your exams, you look back on the stress that you felt and thought that was a bit of an overreaction, wasn't it? Absolutely. And Sarah and I were saying this exact thing this morning. Absolutely. At the time. And then you look back and you can't even remember 
something that that's he's stressed true. about so much at the time. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's why I was um, kind of smiling thinking we were just talking about that earlier today. <laughs> we were. I yeah. mean, that, it doesn't trivialise it. I'm not meant to trivialise it. You know, it, no, not at all. it's perfectly okay to feel anxious and stressed about doing your exams. You know, you shouldn't think, what's wrong with me? Why am I feeling like this? Because it shows that you care. Yeah, it's perfectly normal, isn't it, to an extent? You know, but mm. but um, I guess what they say in OCD is one of the ways that you try and deal with the thoughts is to say, what's the worst, that, what's the absolute worst that could happen? Um, you know, the absolute worst that can happen if you don't do something in your exams is you do them again. Absolutely. Great advice. One other thing, David, I wanted to touch on is fascinating. You mentioned earlier that you've been on the radio, you've been on TV, um, giving interviews, advice, sharing your stories. And I know that you've done talks to hundreds, thousands of people up on stage. And some of our listeners, whether they're teachers, they're students, they may be experiencing or preparing to do a talk in front of other people and they might be terrified. It might be the first time. They might not feel they're too great at it and they could do with some top tips. But I'm curious, do you have a routine that you carry out before you're doing a talk on stage on the radio on tv do you have a mantra have you got any advice for anyone who's preparing to do a talk and and they can be really successful at it and go into it with confidence oh gosh um so again i'm pretty unusual i think in that i actively enjoy public speaking and part of the reason for that was the ocd because being up on stage talking to people was one of the few times that I wasn't thinking about HIV. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, you, you had to really focus on what you were doing. So it's like talking in public and skiing are the two things that always just, I, I was OCD free for the time that I was doing it. Um, so, and, and I'm sure people can find, you know, better advice. I think, I think in, in practical terms, I mean, it, so it sounds trivial, but, one of the one of the one of the most things that you, the things that you can do when you do any kind of presentation you know, standing in front of the public and again it sounds ridiculously stupidly simple but if you look at good speakers you will identify this one is do not move when you talk okay so theatre directors say it weakens you it gives you less uh, less of a platform and watch good TED talks okay. They, what they do is they talk, they'll make a point. They might move, but they almost always stop before they start talking again. Okay? So either stand still and behind a podium or something like that, if that helps, or just kind of don't move your feet while you're talking. Don't shuffle. Don't just kind of walk around in a circle. Just be still. Anchor yourself take down. Take a breath move two steps and then talk again don't be afraid to um to stop and to pause because silence feels a lot longer than it looks okay so it's perfectly okay just to stop and to think take a deep breath open some water have a drink of water um and you know all the all the classics try and imagine the audience in their underpants or try and Imagine that you are talking to, which you are, individuals. Think about how you experience a talk, okay? You don't talk, to, you don't think the same as everyone else in your line. You don't all look at each other going, we're all listening to this. You listen as an individual. 
And that's essentially how you talk as well. You're talking to an individual. And and so that's a sort of a sense of, of, of confidence. And I think what also gives you confidence is preparation. Just know what you're talking about. I mean, frankly, if you've got to do a presentation and you stand up in front of 60 people without having done the homework, you should be anxious because you're in a terrible situation. But that's all within your control, right? Control what you can control. Practice it. Time it. Um, just practice remembering things. You know, don't be afraid to have cue cards. I always try and just talk rather than read a script. Um, but again, some people find a script sort of helpful. I think, again, be kind to yourself, right? It is a hard thing to do. And, and unless you're in court or people are paying to watch you tell jokes, you've usually got an audience that's on your side, right? I mean, almost always you've got a pretty generous audience. So take advantage of that and, and try and relax and try and enjoy it. And, and don't don't be that person who just wants to get off the stage. Brilliant. Great advice. So practice, prepare, take your time, be kind to yourself, breathe, don't move too much. Thank you, David. Stand still. Yes. I'll try. I'm giving away all my trade secrets. That's it. That's <laughs> it. We're all going to go away and practice now. That's it. That's Everything's it. virtual you. now, though, so I can't move. <laughs> no, I think um, we've come to the end, haven't we, Anthony? So we've just got our, our thank yous. Yeah. And are, are there any um, are there any particular signposts or, or organisations or places for support that you would recommend people go yeah, to at all? So for OCD in the UK, there are, there are two. There's OCD UK, there's OCD Action. Um, I'm involved with an organisation called Orchard that do sort of fundraising, but also do a little bit of awareness raising. Um, everything that I've talked about is, is in my book. It's called The Man Who Couldn't Stop. Um, there's also a, if you Google my name on YouTube, I did a talk about this stuff uh, to the to a big conference and there's sort of a 40 minute version of what we just talked about with all the same stuff really but but more of it um yeah i mean the internet is just amazing isn't it for something like this you know um i think just but be care you know trust who you're getting your information from unfortunately th th there are people out there who will try and take your money to give you treatments that don't work so just do a bit of research um, and be careful where you're getting your information from, like like with everything else. Thank you so much. So all our listeners, so all these um, resources, organisations, um, David's book, his website in this talk, all in the show notes. So do go and take a look. Hey, so that's all for our podcast episode today. Um, thanks so much, David, for joining us. Um, to all our listeners, we hope you found this episode useful. Um, don't forget to check out our website, um, www.ocr.org.uk and social media channels for further support um, and please don't hesitate to get in touch with us if you need any more support on this topic or anything else thank you very much